Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wilds, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host. I'm a journalist based out in Reykjavik, Iceland, where, this week, the city started to come alive again. We're getting a lot more visitors. It's it's a very uh, tourist-heavy city, Reykjavik. It seems like, with the restrictions lifting around Europe, and Iceland being put on a green list for travel, in the UK at least. We're starting to see some uh, incoming people that are probably here to go and hike up to the volcano and to enjoy the city. So the city is starting to feel a little more lively. It's interesting to see people out on the streets again after this long, quiet period. But for me, it's been a week of a lot of gaming actually. I've been relaxing with games a lot. Um, I've played a whole bunch of stuff. And the featured game of this episode will be a very popular game that I kind of um, resisted playing for a long time. I kind of had seen screenshots of it and even watched my friend Adam from Switch Indie Fix play a little bit of it on stream. But something about this game wasn't speaking to me, so I didn't play it until now. And I have become fiercely addicted to it. If you've been listening to the show recently and listened to episodes like the Iris and the Giant episode and the Signs of the Sojourner episode... You may have noticed that I've been getting into card games. This is maybe the uh, the king of the card game genre, in recent years at least. It's a dungeon battler with a lot going on, a lot to talk about. It's been really fun. It's called Slay the Spire. So that will be the featured game of the episode. But before I get to Slay the Spire, I will run through a couple of other games that I've been playing. After Fantasian, I was in the mood for some more gentle JRPG action, so I revisited a game that I've started but fallen off of. A really, really delightful JRPG made in collaboration with Studio Ghibli, and that is Nino Kuni, Wrath of the White Witch. A really popular game, as I found out when I tweeted out a little bit of gameplay footage, because it's just such a gorgeous looking game. It really does look and feel like you're playing a Studio Ghibli movie which is a dream for a lot of people, me included. Um, And I think I bounced on it the first time because there are really an intense amount of uh, turn-based bouts of combat. So every feels like every 10 steps or so you're getting into combat when you're in the overworld or outside of towns. Um, And that put me off a little, but after Fantasian, I've gotten more used to that gameplay format. And so I've dived back into Nino Kuni and I've been having a great time with it. The story is so nice and the characters are just delightful. Really kind of uh, gentle, sort of children's book dialogue um, and a kind of a fairy tale atmosphere to the whole thing. So when I last played the game, I'd gotten up to Ding Dong Dell, which is the first town that you reach in the game where there is a cat king who's lost all of his enthusiasm and you have to bring it back by harvesting some enthusiasm and giving it to him via magic as a, a child protagonist, an orphan. Um, and so I got past Ding Dong Dell, I fought the first couple of big bosses in the game, one of which was a, a really fun battle with a kind of a the king of the mice who live in the, the sewers below Ding Dong Dell. And I went on and journeyed through the Golden Grove and into the desert area and to the second town. It's been really, really fun. Um, the combat is a little bit slippery, I would say. It's a, a strange um, mixture of live action combat and turn-based So you're moving around the battle arena, but also trying to manipulate menus, which pause the game. But getting into the menu means that you have to be kind of using the D-pad as you're trying to escape being hit. So it's a little bit odd, and I still haven't quite gotten my head fully around it. But I'm having a great time with it, and 
yeah, I've died once on each of the bosses that I faced, but then got them the second time by using spells and getting better at switching between my characters and healing and avoiding combat and blocking. And so I'm starting to get the hang of it, and I've got a feeling that I'm going to get through Nino Kuni. It's just, it's so delightful. It's really classic comfort gaming, even at this early stage. I played, I think, three hours of it this week, and I'm going to be continuing that one, but it's a very long game, so I may do a full episode on it later, after I've finished it, or at least gotten deep into it. But for now, it's been really, really fun. I also went back into Immortals Phoenix Rising. I'd stalled on that one, despite it being a really, really fun take on Greek mythology with a kind of a Breath in the Wild meets Assassin's Creed Odyssey gameplay. It's a, it's a really good mash of those two, actually. It contains a lot of the elements of Breath of the Wild that, are, that made it what it is, like the flying and the climbing, but it adds in some more complex um, upgrade systems, skill tree, and some of the things that we recognize from Assassin's Creed Odyssey, such as the slow motion um, arrow shots, where you, you can steer the arrow from the perspective of the arrow head um, to trigger switches, to fly around obstacles and hit things. Um, but I'd, I'd, I'd run out of steam with it in, in, the I think, the fourth area of the game, in the Forge Lands, where you are dealing with Hephaestus, the, the Forge God. But I got back into it and, and finished that Hephaestus chapter, and I think I'm on the final big game area now. Um, I'm finally getting towards where Zeus, the narrator of the game, um, is to be found. And so I'm getting closer, I'm inching towards the end of Immortals, and I'm definitely going to do an episode on this game. Um, and talk about it in more detail, because it's very good, and it's been on half-price sale almost since it came out, which I guess means that it didn't um, fly off the shelves initially. So for a £30 game, it's a bargain. Um, I do recommend that people check it out while it's on sale, but it looks like it's kind of perpetually on sale, so no rush there. Um, the third game I've been playing is another Apple Arcade title. It's another card game. I've really been into these card games lately. There's something about the kind of compelling addictive nature of it um, and the card-based rules, learning all of the different rules and kind of refining your strategies. Um, so I've been playing Card of Darkness alongside um, Slay the Spire and really enjoying it. It's a different proposition, but it's optimized for touchscreen phones and it works incredibly well there. It has a lovely, colorful visual style, kind of neon colors, neon colors and pastel colors. It's great to look at. Um, it has a kind of a light story, and you play cards to attack, you play cards to defend, you have status cards like uh, poison, you have spells that you can use, you have to mark different stacks of cards on a board um, and get to the, the stairs at the end of each board to move up to the next level and move on in the story. Um, it's, it's charming, it's funny, and I think I'll be talking about that game again later as well. Um, and I've added a few new games to my playlist I've added Loop Hero. It's a game that I heard about on the Short Game podcast. Um, it seems to have been doing very well on Steam. It just came out on Mac, which means that I'm finally able to play it. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a code to review that one. Um, I've got two more codes for games that I'm excited to play and to talk about in future episodes. One is Sludge Life, another card game, but one that I heard about on a, another podcast. I can't remember which one, but they gave it a really glowing review, actually. Um, so I'll be looking at Sludge Life. Maybe after I'm done with Slay the Spire and Card of Darkness, I've got another card game queued up. It's the kind of game format where 
you get fiercely addicted to it, you power through it, and it's like a period of, of gameplay, you know. Like Iris and the Giant was all I played for one week, but I haven't touched it since. I think I will have the same experience probably with um, these other card games that we're talking about. But it's good to have one in the, the back of your mind. It's good to have a, a card game behind your ear to scratch that itch after you're finished with the ones you have. And so I'm looking forward to Sludge Life. The final game that I've added to my playlist is one that I've been waiting for eagerly um, to come out on a format that I can play it. It's been Windows only on Steam. It's called Umarangi Generation. It had uh, great reviews last year. It's a cyberpunk photography game. It was recommended by Louis on the uh, the Games of the Year podcast earlier this year. It just launched on Switch, and I was lucky enough to get a code for that one. So I'm excited to play Umarangi Generation. I'm going to give that one full focus. So I don't think I'll start it until I've cleared off some of these other games I'm talking about. Maybe I can finally get past the end of Immortals, polish off Card of Darkness, and finish my obsession with Slay the Spire. And then it's great to have Umarangi Generation um, as a great game that I've been really excited about for a future episode. But before I get into Slay the Spire, um, I do want to talk about another game that I played in the last week and was talking about a lot on Twitter, and it had a, a, a somewhat controversial and mixed reaction. It's Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. This was a 2017 game in which you play a Celtic warrior, uh, Senua. She's kind of a very slender, uh, wide-eyed Viking shield maiden warrior. Well, not Viking. I think she's Celtic, actually. And her partner has been killed by Vikings, and she's decided to try and descend into hell to save his soul, to save him, or to find him again. And this is a, a really interesting game. It's absolutely beautiful to look at. It has some of the best visuals that I have ever seen. Uh, the landscapes are incredible. The the environment is really, really interesting, dark and scary and mysterious, redetailed, almost photorealistic at a lot of points. And Senua herself is in intensely well designed. She's amazingly motion captured. It's that kind of motion capture where you feel the the kind of the physical personality of the protagonist. It doesn't look like a kind of a person animation. It really does look like someone. You can see the way she moves. You know, everyone walks differently and moves differently in life. And Senua feels very much like a real person. She has a certain gait. She has a certain stride. Uh, there's a lot of personality in the way that she moves and maneuvers. Um, and it has some combat in it. It's an exploration game that contains puzzles, contains combat. The combat is kind of basic. It's uh, dodge and strike. Um, I guess this is what the combat in Dark Souls might be like. I haven't played those games, but it's what I imagine it might be like. But this feels like a very stripped back and simplified version of that dodge and strike combat. And I was kind of enjoying this game, but the the puzzles are not fun to me. Um, in this game, you proceed through the game by coming up to doors which contain runes. They have three magical runes etched onto them, which kind of spring out in light. Um, and you have to go and find the shape of those runes in the landscape, in the surrounding landscape. So let's say there's a rune that looks like a fork. It has a vertical stem and three prongs at the top. You have to go into the landscape and look at tree branches and staves that have been stuck into the ground and architecture of these kind of Viking houses 
the masts of ships sticking out of the sea, and you have to locate these shapes in the environment. So it's a little bit of a, a hidden puzzle challenge, and I'm not a big fan of hidden object games. I really struggle with them. It's a form of gameplay that I have little patience for, um, just combing the environment. And it does try to kind of make it easier for you by when you're approaching the right area, the little symbol will float in the air around you as if it's been etched in light. Um, so it tells you when you're roughly in the right area, but you end up just sort of standing in these areas for a really long time. And this game is all about urgency, darkness, danger. You feel very attached to Senua. You feel very attached to her journey. But there are these long periods where you're just standing around or walking around very, very slowly, adjusting the angle of where you're standing to look at things. And it can be five to ten minutes on one of these puzzles, if you're bad at them like I am. Um, and so it really took the momentum out of the game to the degree at which I became very frustrated with it. I started using guides, and even using guides um, was frustrating. Um, and I gave this game three separate place uh, sessions because I've been looking forward to it for a really long time. Specifically, um, Senua is suffering from psychosis, and this game takes a really innovative and fascinating look at what it might be like to suffer from psychosis. So Senua suffers, suffers from visual distortions where the world around her seems to kind of fade in and out and apparitions appear. And she's also talked to throughout the game by voices in her mind. Very, very, um, a crowd of voices seems to crowd her, her mind. And so you'll, you'll have people whispering to you saying, no, you can't go there. No, you can't do it. What are you doing? Go home. It's dangerous. And other voices kind of teasing you or prodding you. And it's like you've got 10 people in your mind talking about Senua, um, which I thought I might find kind of triggering or um, difficult to deal with. As someone that suffers from anxiety a lot, to have that kind of um, chorus of criticism in the voice of the character felt like it might not be fun for me. That's why I've left this game so long before I played it. Um, my anxiety is currently in good shape, so I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. Uh, but it wasn't that that I found triggering. I actually feel that it's quite interesting and insightful. I mean, the way that thoughts form in our minds is very interesting. I don't hear my thoughts as voices. I hear them as my own voice. And so it was very interesting to experience the inside of someone's mind who hears their, their thoughts um, and embodies them as different voices inside their own mind. So it feels like there are people talking to them. And that feels like a little bit of a, a breakthrough for me in understanding what psychosis might feel like to hear your thoughts talking to you rather than to feel your thoughts as if they're coming from you. And so that's been fascinating. But what I did find triggering was this, this tedious gameplay. It actually gave me kind of rage quit responses a bunch of times, sort of shouting at the TV levels of frustration. Um, and so I, I've kind of bounced on that game. I came to a point at which I had to find symbols, but rather than finding them slowly and methodically, you have to find them very quickly or you die uh, within 10 or 15 seconds. So I was stuck in a loop of dying every 10 or 15 seconds, not knowing why, not really knowing what I'm looking for. Um, and I just thought, what am I doing? This is just driving me crazy. So I, I bailed on on Hellblade. 
I think it's a wonderful looking game. I think it's a wonderful uh, main character. And the, the portrayal of Psychosis is fascinating. But the gameplay itself is almost like an afterthought. And so it's a bit of a tragedy that this, this wonderful looking game plays so intensely badly that I, I don't think I can even power through it. At the very least, I'm going to take a good long break from it and come back to it later. Maybe after I play Dark Souls or something like that, if I ever get to those games, I'll come back to Hellblade and just zip through it. But for now, um, I don't think it's a good game, honestly, so I've just decided to give that one a break. And the last thing before we move on to talking about Slay the Spire is that I'd like to mention that this show is Patreon-supported. We have a really good uh, community around the show of listeners and uh, friends, uh, gamers, other podcast makers who all talk to each other on Discord. It's really a wonderful bunch of people on there. We just we just chat about like whatever we're playing. We post uh, sale recommendations for each other. We post screenshots. We post uh, tips on new games that are coming out. Talk about what we've been playing. It's a really nice, mellow corner of the internet to talk about games. If you're interested in becoming a part of that community and in getting extra sale recommendations from me, I do it every one or two weeks for the Switch and the PlayStation, let people know what fun games are on deep sale that you can get for a bargain. Often they are buried in the sale pages, and so I think a lot of people miss particularly um, lesser-played indie games when they're on sale. Um, I also do the occasional extra episode about music or about spoiler casts, and so you'll get extra episodes, sale recommendations, and to join our Discord. It's only $1 a month, or 3 or 5 if you're feeling generous, and that's at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. Um, I very much appreciate every single patron that I have, and thank you to you if you're up for supporting the show. Every little helps. My aim for this year is to cover the cost of the show, that's all I really want to do, and so thanks very much to everyone on Patreon. And with that out of the way, let's move on and talk about the featured game of the episode, Slay the Spire. So Slay the Spire is a 2019 game by Megacrit Games, published by Humble Bundle. It was in early access in 2017 on macOS, Windows and Linux. And now it's available on pretty much everything. It's on Switch, PlayStation 4, Xbox. It got an iOS release in 2020. And finally it came out on Android in February of this year. And I started playing it on PlayStation 4 via PS Now because it came onto that service. But I quickly realized that I was gonna want it in a handheld. So I thought about buying it on Switch or iOS and I ended up buying it on iOS because I've gotten used to that big, bright, crisp screen of the iPhone, and the, the Switch screen is a lot dimmer and lower resolution by comparison. And for games like this, where you're looking at a lot of text and little numbers and icons and stuff like that, you really want to be able to see everything very clearly. And so I went for the iPhone. It doesn't have controller support, so it's a touchscreen-only port, which is a little strange because um, you can use the controller on Switch, obviously. But it plays well. You drag and drop the cards. Um, I've had a couple of mishaps with playing the wrong card, but for the most part, I think it's very, very good on the iPhone. So you can play it on any touchscreen device. It was also great on the PlayStation 4. It played well. Um, so I think it's it's a nice game to play on any of those formats. I got it for £10 on iOS. I think it's a little more elsewhere. But it's also on Game Pass if you're on an Xbox. 
and PlayStation Now subscribers can play it as part of their subscription. The game was critically well regarded. It was nominated for awards at the Game Awards, the Golden Joysticks, DICE and IGF. It didn't win anything, however IGN named it the best strategy game of 2019 and PC Gamer gave it an award in the best design category for that year. On Metacritic it's between 85 and 89 across all of those formats, so you can pretty much say it's like a, an 8.5, 9 out of 10 game, which is no mean feat given the amount of reviews that it got, it did very well. It's also been a bit of a, a hit, an indie hit. It sold 1.5 million copies as of March 2019. Um, it's probably safe to say that it's doubled that by now, although I'm, I'm, uh, I'm speculating there. But the game has only grown in popularity. Uh, it seems to do well on Twitch. I see people talking about it on Twitter quite often. I think uh, fans of the, the card-based card game genre love it, and also it's, t it's proving to be an entry point into these kind of games for other people too. Uh, the devs described Slay the Spire as a combination of roguelike inspired progression and deck building card game, um, which is, you know, a succinct little sentence. For me, it's a slick roguelike deck battler with complex layered strategic combat and an engaging fantasy setting. And for a game that has got as many systems going on and as many rules to learn as Slay the Spire, I think this is actually quite an easy one to get into. It's easy to pick up and play and to start feeling your way through it. Especially having played Cards, Card of Darkness as well this week and, um, and noticed how the tutorial doesn't really do the job in that game. Um, Slay the Spire does a good job of filling you in on the systems and the systems all feel quite intuitive and well put together and logical. You can kind of tell what's going on all of the time. There is a lot to learn, but you can, you can, uh, you can get your head around it, it's doable. And the first thing that you do in the game is to pick your character. You start off with one, he was called the Ironclad, he's a knight character, he's a bit of a slugger, he has a good armour, he has good attacks, he's a good all-rounder. And as you progress through the game, you will unlock other characters too. There is an assassin called the Silent, who has more cards in hand at any one time, and um, you can do faster attacks and more multi-blow attacks and poisoning and status effects and things like that, rather than just slugging away. There is one called the Watcher, who is more of a kind of a samurai character, has different stances. You can um, have a defensive stance, that means you'll take less damage but do less damage. You can also have an aggressive stance, uh, where vice versa. And you have to really take care of your finishing stance at the end of your turn and your starting stance at the start of your turn, if you want to avoid damage and do damage optimally. And there is also another character that I haven't played as yet, it's the only one that I haven't taken for a run yet, called the Defect and that one's a malfunctioning robot. And all of these characters have different playstyles that are really notable and interesting. I think they really extend the, the lifespan of the game, because after I had gotten used to the Ironclad, and the Ironclad set of moves, the set of cards that you get as the Ironclad, and the skills that the Ironclad has, I was really ready for a new challenge, and I started playing as the Silent, and it's really different. It's a really different playstyle. It encourages you to play in a different way, and each character has their own card set, so you have to get to grips with their strengths and their weaknesses and how to play as each character, which offers, you know, it's four times the game, basically. If you're into the mechanics of the game, you can play as all of these four different characters, and I believe that when you have completed a run as all of them, you'll unlock an extra world. As it stands, it's a run-based game that has three different worlds for you to go through. 
the Exordium, which is like the, the depths, it's like the bottom layer of Hades if you've played Hades. Then you have the city and the beyond. And each of those areas has different backgrounds, different music, and different bosses. There are three bosses in each area, but you'll only fight one. It's a random pull, uh, which took me by surprise on my first run through. Um, I'd beaten one boss in the Exordium, and the next time I came to the end of that level, I faced a completely different boss. So that added even more variety to the game. And the way that you make your way through each world is that you will see a map before each bout of combat or each encounter a location. And there are four different trails on the map with dots on them that signify encounters or combats. Um, and you, they interlock, so you can kind of map out the, the route that you want to take at the start of each stage and select your starting spot from four different starting spots. So you can kind of pick the combats that you want. I've read a few tip sheets about this game just to see how other people play it. And I've noticed that some people like to take on elite enemies because they will drop better relics and drop more uh, loot for you. But I have found that elite enemies are the fastest way to end my run and that avoiding them at all costs is um, is better for me. So I've um, tended to go for routes that have more encounters and more uh, rest resting spots and more shop encounters and things like that. As few combats as possible, basically. But nevertheless, you will definitely be engaging in at least six or seven uh, bouts of combat on your way to the boss of each area. So the different kinds of encounters that you can have are a standard combat, an elite combat, a rest stop, which is a campfire where you can uh, heal a percentage of your health bar, not your whole health bar, or you can forge cards to improve them. You can choose between those two. And if you get a certain perk in the game, you can also dig and get a relic, more on which later. Then there are shops where you can buy potions, cards and relics, or you can remove a card from your deck, which can be very useful. There are treasure chest encounters where you'll get various goodies. And then there are story encounters, which are really interesting little encounters, for, such as you come across uh, the gathering of a cult somewhere in the underworld, and you can choose between trying to join the cult trying to rob the cult or leaving and uh, each thing will end in a different way sometimes you trade off hit points for perks if you've got a high hit count if your energy is high then maybe that's a good one to go for but if your health is low then maybe you're better off just slinking away and trying to live to fight another day and some of those are really interesting they add some kind of uh, some context to the world that you're in these little story events, like sometimes a snake will come out from a cave and offer you money in exchange for your blood or something, where you lose some health for that. Other times you'll encounter kind of strange spiritual creatures that will offer you trade-offs, like you can encounter a group of vampires who will half your overall health, which just seems like suicide, but in return you'll get a handful of bite cards that you can play in combat that will revitalize you. So that again offers a whole different play style. If you're sick of playing as the Ironclad, but you still want to keep playing Slay the Spire, maybe you can bump into the vampires and try that strategy. There's always a little bit of risk and reward in these encounters, but often the prize is a relic, and relics are very important to Slay the Spire. There are many, many different relics. I feel like I haven't even seen them all, and I've been playing this game now for 17 hours. There is actually a really good stats section on the game, so you can check out your detailed run stats. I'm looking at mine right now, and I can see that I've played for 17 hours and one minute. I've had one successful run, 33 deaths, 
I've climbed 893 floors and killed 31 bosses. In that time I've discovered 132 relics and there are 178 um, plus 24 unlockable relics. I can also see on my stats that my, my one victory was 46 minutes long. So these aren't short runs. I mean, they can be short if you get a really bad hand and um, end up in trouble early. You can be done in, you know, 10 minutes or less. But a successful run, uh, my one successful run anyway, was 46 minutes long. And I do feel like the runs are quite long generally once you've got your head around the system a little bit. But the relics can be make or break. I think some of my favourites is there's one where you get plate armour, which means that at the start of every turn in a bout of combat, you'll get um, additional defence points. That can be really helpful. It allows you to attack more and think less about your defence. Um, another good one is becoming stronger. So you get more strength and your blows land more heavily um, or playing more cards. There are all kinds of um, different relics that offer different status boons and those can really make or break a run but as for the combat which is the main game of slay the spire so so far i've talked about the scenario of trying to scale this spire across the three areas i've talked about the relics and the shops and the paths and the map but the combat is really the main part of the game and it's a card battler game which means that you start off with some basic cards you start off with five attacks five defense and one heavy blow at least if you're playing as the ironclad that's what you get and then from that deck you'll have three four or five cards shuffled into your hand and you can then play the cards accordingly so you can see what your enemies are going to do so you know what kind of attacks are coming in and what you really want to be doing is balancing your attack and defend so if you can see that you're about to take 15 damage from three enemies you could maybe, if you can take out one of the enemies with an attack, that would be great, because that takes away a third of the incoming damage, and then play two defensive cards that will shield you from the other two. So what you're doing is trying to balance your defense against attack, um, and that's the, the basics of the combat, is trying to escape as unscathed as possible whilst dealing the maximum damage. And there are only a few ways for you to regain health in this game. Um, health potions are rare, they're a, a drop from enemies, you can't buy them. And you can only rest at the rest stops, of which you'll get between two and maybe four in uh, each area of the game. So you really have to be careful and conserve your health. But after you've played the cards in your hand or exhausted your energy points, you begin with three energy points, which means you can play three cards. Then the enemy has a turn. Then you play your three cards. And then the enemy has a turn and so forth. Your cards go from a pull deck into an exhausted deck. And then when you've played all of your cards, it's recycled and shuffled, and you start to see the same cards coming through again. Um, I think describing card games on podcasts is really difficult. I've listened to a fair few podcasts about card-related games, and the hosts always get into the weeds describing all of the, uh, the rules and the different systems that are going on, and maybe I'm doing that now. But basically, um, in Slay the Spire, you have a hand of cards, you get more cards throughout the game, and you have to play the cards to win battles. That's kind of the basics of the combat. It's really compulsive. It's really addictive. If your health goes to zero, your run is over. You start again. It's a roguelike, so you'll never see quite the same journey twice, although um, each journey is pretty comparable in terms of the enemies that you'll encounter. But you'll get different cards every time. You'll have different successes and failures every time and have to mitigate damage and act differently based on the situation. So it's a run-based game with some good variety and a really addictive and compelling and compulsive central mechanic 
I've, I've really enjoyed this one. And there is a lot more to the game as well. The combat is really, really complex and layered. There are many different strategies that you can employ. Um, and I've worked through a few. I started off with a kind of an all-out attack strategy. Um, and then I decided that maybe maintaining my health was the most important thing and played very defensively for a while. And then I kind of discovered the multipliers and the more uh, complex status effects and stacking status effects. So my current strategy for playing Slay the Spire is um, based on multiplying strength, which means that my blows land progressively heavier as each bout pr progresses. Um, and you can kind of tune your strength by learning which cards you like through trial and error. Um, and I think maybe the easiest way to talk about this game is to talk through some of those cards. So as, as a heavy attacker, um, some of the cards that I like best are Bludgeon and Carnage. These are pickups that you'll get from defeating enemies, or you can buy them in the store if you're lucky, or when you kill a boss you get a card. These you'll get different cards throughout the game basically and grow your deck. And Bludgeon does 43 damage, which is, um, you know, it's uh, eight times the base attack rate, I think, roughly. Um, and Carnage does more. And you can even double the damage that those will do by using the strength upgrades or by another t card like the double tap card which means that the next attack you play will land twice so if you play a double tack and then a bludgeon you're going to land 86 damage and take out almost all minor enemies knock half the health off an elite enemy and take a good chunk out of a boss too uh, but those strength multipliers are really useful there's a card called demon form and it costs three points to play, so one of your turns will be completely taken up by demon form. You really want to be seeing it in your hand at the start of a bout, because um, you can't defend, obviously, if you've used all your points in that turn. But demon form means that you gain two strength with every uh, turn that you take. So after eight turns, you'll be doing eight times as much damage than you were at the start, and you'll just be wiping out everyone. There's also a card called Flex, which costs zero points to play. It just gives you increased strength for one turn. Um, and there are great cards for defense as well, such as Impervious, which will give you 30 armor points for one turn only. There's a card called Ghost Armor that just gives you a lot of armor points. There's a card called Barricade, which is very, very useful, um, especially because your armor will evaporate at the end of every turn. It will reset, so you have to, it doesn't stack. And Barricade means that your armor stacks. So if you have Barricade and you just play all armor for a couple turns, then you're going to be stacked with armor and free to attack all the time without fear of taking damage. Um, and so all of these different cards and strategies are really deep and interesting. And I'm very curious about the kinds of strategies that other players take in this game. Um, I remember when I was watching Adam play uh, Slay the Spire on Twitch, he was asking for advice from experienced players in the chat, uh, which seems like a really interesting way to do it, because I feel like everyone will have different experience of which cards worked for them, and you can really tune your playing style. And the more, that you, the more comfortable you are with all of the different cards and the more experience you have in using them, the better at the game you will become. And it's a game that just is just going to keep evolving, um, I think there are so many cards, and so many relics, and so many different permutations of the kind of build that you can end up with. 
partially through random encounters, partially through getting given a random card or or losing a card or having a debuff on every turn or something like that. There are unpredictable elements to this game that means that no two runs are the same. Um, but I've completed one run as the Ironclad. Um, I've unlocked all of the characters now. Um, I think I'm going to play through next as the Silent. I'm enjoying the fast-moving, fast-striking assassin uh, playstyle. Um, I really enjoyed the Blind Samurai as well, but I think that character came as a DLC, and it is a more complex character to play because of the addition of stances, and I'm yet to try out the defected robot character. Um, but I really enjoyed my playthrough as the Ironclad, and I fully intend to come back and play more Slay the Spire. It's a very, very addictive game. Completing a run does mean that you roll credits, but it doesn't feel done. There's much more to see in this game and much more to experience. So I recommend giving this one a try. Even if you're not that interested in card games, if you have Game Pass or PS Now, I would suggest giving this one a try. Just take it for a spin and see if it suits you. Because um, I was so turned off by card games for such a long time. And after playing a couple of them now, I kind of wish I'd gotten to them earlier. These are really good games. They're just addictive. They're compelling. They're run-based, but not repetitive. And while the gameplay is the main attraction, um, it's an interesting setting too. There are mysteries of the Spire, and there is a kind of a loosely knit story for each character, and the reason that they are trying to scale the Spire. So I'm a reformed player when it comes to appreciating card-based games and deck battlers. Um, I'm really into them, and Slay the Spire is a great game. Uh, believe the hype, great game. That's Slay the Spire. So that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing about all of the games that I've played this week. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Slay the Spire. Um, I know a lot of people who listen to the show um, do play the game. Um, it's been recommended to me many times, and so thanks to everyone that threw it my way. It's a really good one, actually. It's one game that really deserves the status that it's gotten. Um, I'm glad that this game did so well. Um, and I think I'm going to be playing it for quite a while. It's, it's so addictive, and it's Having it on the phone is so nice too. It's the kind of game that I can imagine would just eat up an entire flight. If each run is about 20 minutes to 40 minutes long, a couple of runs of Slay the Spire is going to be most European flights, so having it on phone is really useful. And if you did enjoy the show today, please come and follow me on social media and join the conversation. I'm as Gaming in the Wild on Twitter. That's my main place for chatting to people. I'm on there every day talking about games. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Slay the Spire, on Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice, on why I'm wrong about that game, and about all of the other games that you're playing, um, and any opinions that you have about the show, any uh, thoughts you have, any suggestions. Um, I'm also on Instagram, YouTube, Twitch. Uh, we have the Discord server for patrons. You're really welcome to come and join the Patreon gang at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. And another thank you to all of my great patrons, and thanks to you if you're thinking of becoming a member. There are some great games on sale at the moment, actually. The last few that I pulled out were some real deep cuts, some cult games that I think a lot of people haven't played. And so I, I saw people sitting up and taking notice of those recommendations. I've got a few questions about the current games that I'm recommending for sale picks. I'll be back next week with another show. I'm not quite sure what it will be about yet. Um, I am playing Card of Darkness, but maybe it's a bit of overkill to do two card games in a row. Let me know what you think. I do also have that really strong roster of new games to play. I'm looking forward to Loop Hero. I'm looking forward to Sludge Life. 
and I'm really looking forward to Umarangi Generation. It might be that one. I'm kind of itching to play that game, actually. It looks so fun and original. Um, and I love the fact that it's just landed on Switch. Want to support it. The developer seems really nice and personable. So perhaps it will be Umarangi Generation. But yeah, come and say hello to me on Twitter. I have a couple of questions running at the moment. Um, one thread that's been getting some attention is, who is your favourite video game shopkeeper? Um, I was kind of inspired to post that by Falcon Ron from Pyre. I was describing Pyre to a friend and um, Falcon Ron came into my head. He's the weird little shopkeeper in Pyre who kind of sniggers and chunters away and kind of starts singing along to the music whilst you're browsing his shop in Pyre. Um, and I've had all kinds of responses. A lot of people said various shopkeepers from Zelda. There was one, I haven't played Skyward Sword, but there's one quite spectacular dancing shopkeeper in that game that people have been posting videos of. Some people have been posting the shopkeeper from Dark Souls or from various RPGs. Uh, Fire Emblem seems to be a popular choice. So pop along to Twitter and let me know who your favourite video game shopkeeper is. Um, I'll be back with a new show next week. Take care of yourselves and each other. Thanks for listening as always, and bye-bye for now.